From the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, this is The Steady Stater, a podcast dedicated to discussing limits to growth and the steady state economy. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brian Check, and our guest today is Richard, or Dick Lamb, the three-term governor of Colorado and one-time presidential candidate. In case anyone is wondering why we invited Mr. Lamb to The Steady Stater, let me quote from his Wikipedia bio. Lamb ran for governor of Colorado in 1974 on a platform to limit growth and was elected. That, of course, is music to the ears of steady staters everywhere. Dick Lamb, welcome to the Steady Stater. Thank you. Well, Dick, let's start right off with that Wikipedia quote. Lamb ran for governor of Colorado in 1974 on a platform to limit growth and was elected. How the heck did you manage to pull that off? Well, part of it was just good timing. Um, It was a Watergate year. Um, But perhaps of more interest would be that I went to a one-room schoolhouse in northern Illinois during the Second World War. And a teacher did something that sticks with me to this day. And you've heard it many times. It was about the the prince who has a bet with the jester. And the jester's, and the prince says, what's the odds? And the jester said, not very much. You just take a piece of rice and put it on the first square of a chessboard and then double it for the next one and double it for the next one. <laughs> and, of course, the kicker is there's not enough rice in the whole kingdom to be able to double through a rice through a chessboard, and that really stuck through me. It it was so vivid about geometric growth, and and I I've been haunted by that ever since. Wow, what a story! I was actually going to ask you about that because when I was revisiting your bio, I was reminded that you're actually from Madison, Wisconsin, and I guess also grew up largely in in Pittsburgh, and then there was some time in Illinois, and then you went back to Madison to attend the University of Wisconsin. Then, before ending up in Colorado, where you got a law degree at the University of Colorado, from what I can tell, you at least lived in California and Utah. So were there any other particular experiences beyond that metaphorical lesson from the schoolhouse that you actually observed on the ground that got you following up from that lesson and thinking specifically about limits to growth? That's that's an excellent question. Um, By the way, I did my law work at Berkeley, at the University of California at Berkeley. Oh, And um, after Berkeley, I came to Colorado, didn't know a soul, and and started working my way up the ladder. Um, But yes, I've always... Um, I've always been an adventurer, and I had a whole bunch of jobs during college. I was a runner on the New York Stock Exchange. I was a lumberjack in Oregon. I sailed a season on the Great Lakes on the ore boats. So I, I have been, I was an adventurous young man. Um, and the, the world, the, the world was my adventure. Wow, that's great. So, so one thing we've discovered is there are some errors, perhaps, in that Wikipedia page, so we'll have to try to look into that, too. 
Now, when you were campaigning for governor that first time around 1974, as I understand it, you were talking a lot about growth issues and in particular population growth. Did you also talk explicitly about limits to economic growth and or GDP growth per se? Again, a good question. Let me say that um, I did not have any money. I was running against in a primary against two very popular Democrats. So I walked the state. I came up with a gimmick where I started at the Wyoming line and walked straight down the front range to the New Mexico line. And um, I was able to capture the imagination of the press and the state. And I I won essentially by coming up with a new campaign gimmick. (coughs) Um, I did talk about growth. I had led the fight against the Olympics. Uh, Colorado had had hosted, had bid to host the Olympics and they won. And I went and I went against that mm-hmm. and led a statewide initi- initiative that defeated the Olympics. And so a lot of that was around grow- Colorado is growing too fast. And so the growth issue was part of my political platform. I was f- fighting in the legislature for land use planning. But the biggest thing where I got my constituency is I led the battle against the 1976 Olympics. Mm-hmm. And it, in the 1972 Colorado elections, we uh, defeated we defeated the Olympics. And mm-hmm. um, somebody at the victory party held me up to the top of the ceiling and said, ladies and gentlemen, the next governor of Colorado. I, I, looked, I looked around and yeah, I saw that the same people that um, had helped, had had defeated the Olympics, could help me uh, become governor. And so I I ran for governor and won. Wow. First of all, that must have been quite a walk from Wyoming to New Mexico. And then for things to come together like that, that's just quite a great story. It was a magic time in my life. John Denver came down from Aspen to walk the last mile with me to the state capitol in a snowstorm, and he gave a concert to uh, on the steps of the Capitol for all my supporters. I mean, it was oh a my. magic, oh magic my. time. Wow, that, that's really something. Well, were there any other prominent politicians back then who spoke in a clear and critical manner about either population growth or economic growth? So I, <clears throat> I was in the House of Representatives. In the Senate was a wonderful... Um, was a wonderful Republican senator um, named John Birmingham. With this John Birmingham, who was a Republican senator, we we just hit the magic time and the magic uh, mood. Oh, I see. Well, okay, so there was John Birmingham. Um, what about Jimmy Carter? How close do you suppose he came to being a steady stater? Well, you know, I, I would love to have known him better. Uh, <clears throat> We got off on a bad foot because he tried to kill a bunch of water projects in Colorado, which is an issue that he was right on. But I, no, no Colorado governor could deliberately give up water projects. So we had a little bit of an antagonistic relationship. 
And I would have loved to explore this better because I really got a feeling that Jimmy Carter in his bones and in his nuclear engineering and in his just knowledge, he, mm-hmm. he understood that there couldn't be endless growth. Right, but so those water projects, he was trying to kill those off, but you must have had a lot of pressure by your constituents to make those these projects. Are we talking about uh, hydropower dams or agricultural irrigation projects? We had a very powerful congressman named Wayne Aspinall who was able to get a bunch of these authorizations, okay? He couldn't get the funding for mm-hmm. them, but he could get the authorization. And mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter came along and said, "These are uh, these are these are white elephants. They they'll they'll never pay for themselves. We don't need the water for ag. You're spending hundreds of millions of dollars of to dam up water to grow agricultural products that are already in surplus in the nation. So mm-hmm. I really admired Jimmy Carter. He." He did not admire me because he felt that I should have had the courage of my convictions. But again, I say in my defense, no Colorado governor could give up five water projects that had been granted us by Congress. We worked it out and we we became we became friends. But again, I, I Jimmy. Jimmy Carter loved the outdoors, and he was a farmer, and he understood carrying capacity, and he understood that growth could not go on forever. Well, you know, we're going to have to have you on another time because we could talk for a whole episode about the 70s and Carter and so on. But, you know, right now I want to shift a little bit to the 80s and 90s. So how about Bruce Babbitt? I had the sense that he got it, limits to growth, I mean, but never quite came clean on it. It seemed like like he signed on with that Clintonian rhetoric that there is no conflict between growing the economy and protecting the environment. Did you know Babbitt? I, I knew Babbitt very well and, and very much admired him. Uh, he was very smart and a very good governor, but he, he could not take too long a lead from second base of conventionality and he 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 would not he would not make population an issue um mm-hmm. and he he made the environment an issue and he was really good at that as he was as secretary of interior but he mm-hmm. to make a big issue of saying um we live in a limited planet and we have to uh, we have to treat her we have to understand the impacts of growth he, he couldn't quite get all the way there well dick i want to keep talking with you but uh, we want to take a short non-commercial break and uh, let rick tibbetts provide our listeners with a message hi there we hope you're enjoying the show I just wanted to take this brief intermission to encourage you to become a Cassie member. It's only $25 per year, and Cassie members receive a five-star rated book called Best of the Daily News in addition to other exclusive Cassie offerings. Member support is invaluable in our fight to advance the steady-state economy and to grow support for it around the world. 
In order to sign up to be a member, just go to our website, steadystate.org, pan over to the Join button, and click Become a Member in the drop-down menu. Now, back to the show. Well, how about Al Gore? Did you ever get a chance to talk with him behind the scenes about limits to growth by chance? I never had a very good um, relationship with Gore. Um, I don't know what exactly it was. He did not like me. Uh, We never had a warm relationship. I admired him a great deal. I went to, you know, one of his uh, seminars. Uh, I think that he has been... um, the leading politician in terms of trying to wake up the, our society on global warming and growth. Yeah, you know, he wrote that book, Earth in the Balance, of course, and that was actually one of my favorite books when I read it back in the mid-90s. But he seemed to raise in that book, uh, toward the end of it, the notion that we could actually meld the two goals of economic growth and environmental protection. So sort of like a win-win scenario. And I re-examined the book later and found that that section was actually kind of a flimsy argument, and it certainly flew right in the face of my Ph.D. research at the University of Arizona. So I came away wondering, you know, if Gore actually... uh, if the book at least caused as much harm as good, if it led a lot of the readers to believe in that win-win rhetoric. But you would say that Gore had a net positive effect? Well, Brian, I, you know, it's, it's really interesting because we've all had to deal with the idea that it's an atavistic part of the human uh, being that, that we grow and that we, that we expand and that we, that, that we multiply. And I think that, that Al Gore saw where this was taking us, but that somehow he thought he could ameliorate the effects of growth, hmm. where mm-hmm. I feel and felt from the very beginning that you, you, nobody can chase geometric curves. They move too fast on you. And you, you really have to come up with some variation of gro- growth suppression. Mm, yeah, well, you know, there's a quote somewhere in there, maybe the atavistic part of the human being. Yeah, no, I uh, think that, you know, for a million years, the way we survived on a lonely planet was to, to, to have children and, uh, and, and to multiply our economy. But um, he did not seem to, I hope I'm doing him justice, but he was a reluctant to take population on individually. Well, like I say, to me, there seems to be a lot of confusion that came out of the Clinton-Gore and Babbitt administration because on one hand, they were very strong on protecting the environment, but they seemed to propagate that win-win rhetoric more than just about any other administration. So it's really, uh, the verdict seems to be out on the net effect But if you want readers to really get it about limits to growth, which books would be your best, let's say, your top three recommendations? Let me go back about Al Gore and and Bruce Babbitt. You know, new paradigms come hard, and it's always tempting to keep a foot in each of the old paradigm and the new paradigm. And it's pretty hard to cast yourself adrift 
and only the new paradigm. And I, I yeah. don't think they could do that. On the other hand, they were also running the country. And so it was easier for me as just a mere governor to be able to raise some of these issues. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think that in terms, I mean, I, I loved your book. And when I, when I looked at things that I really uh, hit me hard as to the new, new message, I, I think limits to growth is a little obscure, but it's still worth reading. Um, um, and I think that Paul Ehrlich was worth reading. He was a great popularizer. All of these people, I'm sure that they've tried to do this to you. They're, they're easy to try to put down, but I think that you, we are on the side of history. No, no trees grow to the sky and no element of our of our economy or budget or environment can grow forever. Well, those are definitely some good ones. And I wasn't expecting you to mention my book, Supply Shock, but I sure appreciate it. Now, uh, going back to politics again, when you were the governor of Colorado, you were a Democrat and you served from 1974 to 1986. Then when you were a presidential candidate in 1996, you ran with the Reform Party. The party started up by Ross Perot in 1995. What caused you to make that shift from the Democratic Party to the Reform Party? Well, it's a big question, but I feel, I felt at the time that the Democratic Party was being controlled by the teachers union, by the trial lawyers, by, um, you know, that our, our special interests might have been better than the Republican special interests, but they still bothered me. And so I, with a group of other people, said, let's try to take the fiscally conservative de uh, Democrats and the socially liberal Republicans and put them in together in a new party. Mm. There had not been a new party since the Republican Party in 1856. And we were audacious enough to feel mm. that, that the country was might be ready for a new political party which would be uh, take elements of both the Republican and the Democratic Party and have a fiscally responsible environmentally aware new party mm -hmm. it didn't work mm -hmm. but we tried it well it was a brilliant idea the way you describe it especially I wonder about Ross Perot though did he understand the conflict between economic growth and economic sustainability? In my opinion, Ross Perot was all about Ross Perot. And hmm. um, I, I don't no, think I that he really wanted to no, build a new party as much as he wanted to promote himself. I see, yeah. Well, you know, that's kind of reminiscent, I guess, in reverse of a certain other politician we have right now. I don't remember too much too much about Perot. Uh what you're telling me does resonate. He had a huge ego and stuff. But, uh, but I also vaguely recall him being pretty pro-growth kind of candidate, or certainly pro-business. I flew around a lot with Ross Perot to various things. We, we agreed to go together, and so when we went together to each make our pitch to, you know, a big meeting in, in Valley Forge. We and we we really did not 
I don't think we particularly, we didn't understand each other. We really mm. didn't understand each other. He didn't understand what I was talking about. And, and I think I understood the fact that Ross Perot was an incredible egoist and um, smart guy, made a brilliant business success. He's much to be admired, but he's not a force for change. How about Pat Choate, Perot's running mate? Was he saying anything about economic growth back then one way or the other? He was. Yes, he was. And, and uh, Pat Choate and, and I got along well. Um, he, um, he understood. I, I suspect that he read your book early on. He understood uh, the geometry of growth and change. Well, I know he's a Cassie signatory, so he certainly has some knowledge about that. But I didn't know if back then he was saying anything. And, and that must have been an interesting dynamic then with he and Perot. Uh, well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the environmental NGOs. One time, a colleague brought me a file that he had stored for decades, evidently, and it had an article from U.S. News and World Report. The article was from, I want to say, around 1970, and it mentioned that Friends of the Earth was warning Americans about the parallels, uh, the, the perils of economic growth. And that's about 50 years ago. As far as I know, with the exception of Greenpeace, and the International Fund for Animal Welfare, none of the big environmental NGOs, including Friends of the Earth U.S., have said a peep about economic growth in the past few decades. In fact, the Nature Conservancy, the Audubon Society, National Wildlife Federation, they've all gone on record stating that economic growth and environmental protection are compatible goals. What do we do to get these NGOs back on track and leading instead of misleading on limits to growth? One, one bit of history first is that because of my frustration along the line that you just articulated, um, I went to Paul Ehrlich and Paul Ehrlich and I started um, zero population growth. And Paul was the first president and I was the second president. And we ran zero population growth for about, I don't know, six or seven years. But uh, there's limits to the amount of people we can crowd on the earth. Well, folks, we're going to have to end this one a little bit abruptly because we lost our connection with Dick. Uh, but we've been talking with Dick Lamb, the three-term governor of Colorado, and the closest thing we've had in the USA to a viable steady-state presidential candidate. And we'll have him on the show again, for sure. Meanwhile, who's going to take up the mantle next and win on a platform of limiting growth? Whoever it is will need some of that Dick Lamb charm and verve. With that, I'm Brian Check, and you've been listening to the Steady Stater Podcast. See you next time.